The Memory Hole podcast is intended only for mature audiences as it deals with topics of childhood sexual abuse and incest. Please do not listen with children. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual abuse, please call RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at their 24-hour hotline, 1-800-656-4673. More information is available on their website, www.rainn.org. The Memory Hole, Episode 3, The Courage to Heal. Back in 1989 or 90, I never sat down and properly read through The Courage to Heal. If anything, I was exposed to it through osmosis, soaked up from my roommates or while browsing in the self-help section of the local bookstore. I surely had glanced through it, though, because it was immediately recognizable to me when I ordered my copy from Thrift Books a few years ago. It has soft beige paper and is about the size of a small city's phone book. On the cover, in reassuring curvy purple font, is the title, The Courage to Heal, subtitled A Guide for Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse. The book was first published in 1988. It is arguably one of the most read self-help books ever. Authors Ellen Bass and Laura Davis claim that millions of women have had their lives changed by reading it. Three other editions were published, the last in 2008. But unlike phone books, The Courage to Heal is still actively read. There's a waitlist for the fourth edition at my local library today, in 2023. While many people claim that this book was a lifeline, when resources for survivors of child sexual abuse were rare to non-existent, there are big problems with the book. This episode is going to talk about some of them, even at the risk of alienating the legions of followers this book has. It feels more accurate to call them followers rather than readers. Just go read the laudatory Goodreads reviews and then compare those to the Wikipedia page to get a sense of the divide of opinions around this book. It is a huge chasm. One of the problems, one that we should really start with, is a personal problem. I kind of want to like Ellen and Laura. Laura, we have a very long history. This was an online book promotional event for Laura's latest book, hosted by the Elliott Bay Bookstore. I had just moved to Santa Cruz uh, with the express purpose of coming out as a lesbian. Uh, <laughs> I had heard that Santa Cruz was a town full of women-loving women, and I moved there. Uh, They're writers, after all, and that's what I'm aspiring to, to be a writer. And there on the laundromat bulletin board was a flyer for a writing workshop called Writing About Our Lives, and the teacher was Ellen Bass. And I attended a workshop she taught that very weekend, and I kept attending her classes for the next two years. They're both a lot more successful and respected than I am. They each conduct online courses and workshops that seem warm and encouraging. Their poems and writings are published in prestigious magazines and journals. And one of those threads was, was the, the courage to heal. And I wonder if we could start off, I'd like to start off with you just reading a little bit from the book so we get to hear um, from the book itself, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Is okay. that okay? Yeah, that's great. Ellen had just published 
I Never Told Anyone, Writings by Women Survivors of Child Sexual Abuse. The first book where women shared stories of having been sexually abused. I knew about the book and the impact it was having, and Ellen knew I'd been having incest memories. What I didn't know and learned at the party was that Ellen's publisher, Harper and Rowe, wanted her to write a sequel, a book about healing. When she told me that she'd said no, I asked, would you consider writing it if you had me as a collaborator? Ellen knew I had the writing chops. Laura, if I was gonna- The idea of writing a book about healing grabbed me. So I waged a strategic campaign to convince Ellen to agree. How about if I do all the legwork for the first year and then you jump in once your obligations are over? How about if I do all the interviews? What if I do all the parts you don't wanna do? I was friendly, determined, and relentless. Six weeks later, a yellow envelope arrived in the mail. The return address was from Ellen. Tearing it open, I pulled out a card with embossed pastel balloons imprinted on the front. Inside, a single word in cursive. Yes. And that's how the courage to heal, the book mom hated, the one that tore us even farther apart, was born. Oh boy, <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> I, I, I had to admire Laura's ingenuity and her tenacity. She was so, she went about- I am sure they are well-meaning. They seem like nice people. I have been reluctant to openly criticize the courage to heal because of the standing of Ellen and Laura in the writing community, and also because the courage to heal historically and even in our modern day has been coded as part of the feminist struggle. But when it comes right down to it, I am for due process, and I am for an evidence-based examination of how memory works. And so I feel I must offer some criticisms of the book as part of this examination of the wider recovered memory movement. I think Meredith Marin has more to say about this. She fully lived in this cultural milieu and helped shape it. It was the ultimate conspiracy theory, really. Um, when you hear these two groups of people, nursery school children and in preschools, and then this separate group of women like me, meaning women in their usually in their 30s, usually upper middle class and white or middle class and white, oftentimes lesbians, most of them in clusters in big cities. Like I lived in North Oakland, which was kind of world headquarters for the lesbians of America. And in these, and you know, they were kind of led and guided by feminist researchers and therapists like Diana Russell. Um, and we were of, car, of course predisposed to look for truths beneath the surface of America. We were picking up the corner of the American rug, looking for horrible things crawling around and underneath as a way of life. Right. Not, not incest only, but patriarchy, sexism, all that. So it was not incredible to us to read these statistics and for women in clusters like the one I lived in to 
say to a friend in a therapy group or whatever, I'm having these weird memories and then these therapies. So at the risk of alienating the writing community, I feel like examining the excesses of this book and its role in the recovered memory movement is the right thing to do. Calling out a historical psychological hysteria feels more about fairness and justice than not commenting. Using Meredith's metaphor, it's time to take a look under this rug too. Now that we've got the introductions to Laura and Ellen over with, let's jump in with a quiz. No prep needed, and it is open book. Do you feel that you're bad, dirty, or ashamed? Do you feel powerless, like a victim? Do you feel different from other people? Do you feel there's something wrong with you deep down inside, that if people really knew you, they'd leave? Do you ever feel self-destructive or suicidal, or that you simply want to die? Do you hate yourself? Do you have a hard time nurturing and taking care of yourself? Are you able to enjoy feeling good? Do you find it hard to trust your intuition? These questions come from the opening section of The Courage to Heal in a chapter called Taking Stock, where the reader is meant to assess just what is wrong with them. trouble feeling motivated? Are you often immobilized? Are you afraid to succeed? Can you accomplish things you set out to do? Do you feel you have to be perfect? Do you use work or achievement to compensate for inadequate feelings in other parts of your life? Can you recognize your feelings? The questions in the opening chapters were probably familiar for women, reared as we all were on women's magazines that routinely peppered readers with inane personality quizzes in order to assess our condition. Pop psychology met feminism long before this book, after all. We were used to the crossover between feminism and self-help. Are you prone to depression? But these questions in The Courage to Heal were also not like the questions from women's magazines. The question format feels normal and almost expected in a self-help setting. But the questions are intense, probing, and intrusive. They seem all-knowing about any and all dark thoughts the reader may have had or discomfort she may have felt. The personality quiz format was like a disguise. This opening section of the book is not a personality quiz. It's meant to get you to consider the idea that something happened to you in the past that is still affecting you today, something that you may not be aware of. The authors say this very plainly, just before the section, Taking Stock, in the following passage. The long-term effects of child sexual abuse can be so pervasive that it's sometimes hard to pinpoint exactly how the abuse affected you. It permeates everything. Your sense of self, your intimate relationships, your sexuality, your parenting, your work life, even your sanity. Everywhere you look, you see its effects. The results of childhood sexual abuse can be devastating, but they do not have to be permanent. As you read this chapter, you may find yourself nodding your head, uh-huh, me too recognizing, perhaps for the first time, the ways in which the abuse affects your life. Look at the following lists. 
and ask how you've been affected. So that last passage makes it clear. These weren't checklists to determine if you felt depressed or should get out of a bad relationship. According to the authors, these are lists of symptoms experienced by survivors of childhood sexual abuse, either remembered or forgotten. But what the authors call symptoms are not. Some of these questions hint at normal, albeit difficult, parts of the human experience. Other questions are concerning, but not diagnostic of a specific ailment all on their own. The questions are not diagnostic of forgotten or remembered child sexual abuse. A good therapist would offer a differential diagnosis list for why a woman might feel this way. Here, the authors themselves seem blind to other possibilities for their checklists of symptoms. At the end of this first chapter, the reader is told, if you recognize some of your own problems in these lists, you may, hmm, you probably do, have a history of childhood sexual abuse, whether you remembered it or not. Everyone I knew, every woman I knew had that book on, on her nightstand, including me. And every woman I knew did what I did, which was take a big, thick pack of post-its and the book and sit with the book. And every time we read something that applied to us, you have nightmares. You don't like mayonnaise. You can't understand your early experiences with doctors, why they freaked you out. I mean, there were so many symptoms and I did it. And my book was full of post-its. You know, I had every symptom except I mean, these were symptoms, meaning you're on a hunt for a lost memory. Mm-hmm. This was not, there were certainly, when I met my girlfriend, she said, my brother molested me when we were kids. There was no doubt or need to recover a memory. Right. She always known it. She knew it. There were many, many women who grew up knowing that they had been molested or raped as children. But I'm talking about right. people like me who aren't sure. And this was a list of symptoms that it's kind of like, I mean, I read my horoscope, Leo, and then I just for the heck of it, I read Virgo and I think, I read Leo and I think, oh my God, that's exactly me. That's exactly what's happening. And then I read Virgo and I think, pretend you're, oh my God, that's exactly what's happening. (laughs) It was kind of like that. Another reason I have struggled to criticize the courage to heal is because it is so darn sure of itself. In this, it is like a lot of self-help books. The courage to heal speaks in an authoritative voice, addressing you, the reader, with certainty, especially in the first edition. Later editions had some hedging. When you turn to a book needing help and reassurance, certainty feels good. And the Courage to Heal offered more than just reassurance. It suggested that there was a whole community of rememberers that you were joining just by reading the book. You were in this thing, recovery and recovering memories together. But the comfort that certitude provides can blind you to the confirmation bias it entertains. The list of so-called symptoms 
seem to me to be a classic example of confirmation bias, which means the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. In the chapter, appropriately entitled, Believing It Happened, the reader is instructed to believe. To heal from child sexual abuse, you must believe that you were a victim, that the abuse really did take place. And a few paragraphs later, even if your memories are incomplete, even if your family insists nothing ever happened, you still must believe yourself. Even if what you experienced feels too extreme or too mild to be abuse, even if you think, I must have made it up or no one could have done that to a child, you have to come to terms with the fact that someone did those things to you. This is something you will have to acknowledge again and again. You, you, you. The reader is directly addressed throughout the courage to heal as you, when you were abused, your boundaries, your right to say no, your self-control, and so on. In their 2001 academic examination of this topic, entitled Telling Incest, Narratives of Dangerous Remembering from Stein to Sapphire, authors Janice Doan and Devin Hodges point out that this second person allows the authors, the unstated we to the reader's you, to exert a quietly authoritarian tone, one that makes the caring on display a form of control. This certainty allows the authors to suggest that childhood sexual abuse is a near-universal experience. If you deny it, odds are good you are repressing the memories of it. This voice of authority is demonstrated in the most infamous pronouncement, present only in the first edition from 1988. So far, no one we've talked to thought she might have been abused and then later discovered that she hadn't been. The progression always goes the other way, from suspicion to confirmation. If you think you were abused and your life shows the symptoms, then you were. Imagine the average reader of the book. First, the book reframes her behaviors and emotions as proof of childhood sexual abuse, forgotten or remembered. Any incest suspicion is reinforced. Then, in passages like the one above about the need to believe, she is exhorted to believe these new explanations. Stifle your doubts, she is told. The doubt in her new ideas is baked in as something normal, something to be overcome. One subtle problem with the courage to heal is their reliance on personal testimony. Women's stories and anecdotes, the voice of the survivor, really form the backbone of this book. The stories are gripping and emotive, kind of like a group therapy session on the page. But they do not provide sound advice, and these women are not themselves experts. To get a flavor, let's listen to some of the more compelling quotes here. The more I worked on the abuse, the more I remembered. First, I remembered my brother and then my grandfather. About six months after that, I remembered my father. And then about a year later, I remembered my mother. I remembered the easiest first and the hardest last. Even though it was traumatic for me to realize that everyone in my family abused me, there was something reassuring about it. 
For a long time, I'd felt worse than the initial memories should have made me feel. So remembering the rest of the abuse was actually one of the most grounding things to happen. My life suddenly made sense. There is no right or wrong when it comes to remembering. You may have multiple memories, or you may just have one. Years of abuse are sometimes telescoped into a single recollection. When you begin to remember, you might have new images every day for weeks on end. Or you may experience your memories in clumps, three or four of them coming in a matter of days, then not again for months. Part of me felt like I was on the trail of a murder mystery and I was going to solve it. I really enjoyed following all the clues. Okay, I was looking at the clock. It was mid-afternoon. Why was it mid-afternoon? Where could my mother have been? Oh, I'll bet she was at. Tracing down the clues to find out exactly what had happened was actually fun. I obsessed for about a year on trying to remember, and then I got tired of sitting around talking about what I couldn't remember. I thought, all right, let's act as if. It's like you come home and your home has been robbed and everything's been thrown in the middle of the room and the window is open and the curtain is blowing in the wind and the cat is gone. You know somebody robbed you, but you're never going to know who. So what are you going to do? Sit there and try to figure it out while your stuff flies around? No, you start to clean it up. You put bars on the window. You assume somebody was there. Somebody could come along and say, now, how do you know somebody was there? You don't know. People have said to me, why are you dragging this up now? Why? Why? Because it has controlled every facet of my life. It has damaged me in every possible way. It has prevented me from living a comfortable emotional life. If I had a comfortable childhood, I could be anything today. That last quote really encapsulates the promise the Courage to Heal makes. Incest is a universal story, the original trauma. Tell your story of incest and recover. Recovery from incest can completely heal your future. One problem was, for many women, perseverating on their memories made their psychological conditions worse. The book refers to this worsening as a state of emergency, when all the reader can do is focus on her abuse memories. But according to journalist Mark Pendergrast... The problem with it is not just that it's a psychological theory. The problem is that there is overwhelming evidence that it hurts uh, people's mental health, uh, they they often go into what Bass and Davis and the Courage to Heal called the emergency stage, where they feel that they don't have any idea who they are, they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't have sex, it ruins their relationships, they end up often uh, attempting suicide and, and all too often uh, succeeding. Another problem with the book that I'll address in depth in episode five are claims about how memory works. 
At this juncture, I just want to make it clear that traumatic memories are not actually repressed. I know this goes against everything you have heard in the popular psychological press. In episode 5, we'll talk more about how the idea of repression is not an evidence-based explanation for how our minds work. And arguably the biggest problem with the book is its irresponsible, outright endorsement of claims around ritual abuse, also known as satanic ritual abuse. The memory wars really overlap a lot with some of the allegations of the satanic panic. For the simplicity of this podcast, I've chosen to keep them somewhat separate. I just don't have the bandwidth to talk all about the allegations of ritual abuse that emerged during this time. But here in The Courage to Heal, we must confront it. In the first edition, then, on page 417, Alan Bass and Laura Davis feature the words of a woman they've anonymized as Annette. They describe Annette as an upper-middle-class 60-year-old woman. From the summary of Annette's chapter, it says, From infancy, Annette was abused in rituals that included sexual abuse, torture, murder, pornography, and systemic brainwashing through drugs and electric shock. Quote, I was what they called a, quote, breeder. I was less than 12 years old. They overpowered me and got me pregnant, and then they took my babies. They killed them right in front of me. End quote. If Annette's stories sound extreme and unbelievable, it's because they are. Her stories overlap with the typical discredited testimony induced in therapy and cult-like settings from other self-described survivors of ritual abuse. The Courage to Heal goes on in this chapter to quote from Sandy Gallant, a policewoman. Sandy believes, quote, The best description I've heard of ritual abuse is from Larry Pazder, the psychologist who wrote the book Michelle Remembers. If you aren't familiar with this classic fable from the Satanic Panic era, it is a discredited book about a psychologist and his patient, Michelle, later his wife, and the extreme satanic, sadistic, and highly sexualized abuse she suffered, all so-called memories she recovered under his care. In later editions of The Courage to Heal, the authors still continue to feature voices from quote-unquote survivors of ritual abuse. When it comes right down to it, The Courage to Heal is like every other self-help book. No matter what you think of this modern genre, most of the book is the same as many others found next to it on the shelf in the self-help section. The checklist of symptoms, the anecdotes from people who have been through the difficulties the book is addressing, the certainty of the book's answers. These are features of the genre, not a bug. These are two authors who uh, knew nothing at all about psychology. They're just two amateurs, I and mean, one of them was a poet. Um, and they purport to uh, show us in a very lengthy book how the human mind uh, works under sexual stress. But they didn't know anything about it, they just made it up. Yes, it's true what Professor Cruz says here. Neither of the authors are psychologists nor do they have any sort of mental health qualifications. Although, side note, 
in the first edition, Bass does call herself a counselor in the preface. She says, I am not academically educated as a psychologist. I have acquired counseling skills primarily through practice. Since 1970, when I began working as a counselor and group facilitator, I've had the opportunity to train with a number of excellent therapists. This kind of DIY spirit was celebrated in the 1970s. Heck, it is an American feature. Probably the authors didn't see this as an obstacle, and neither do most self-help book authors today. Certainly Americans are happy to take advice from unqualified people. Bass and Davis's field is creative writing, and, as we heard, their work was single-mindedly driven by the voice and experiences of the survivor. The Courage to Heal is a work of personal recovery, born in the grassroots feminist liberation movement of the 1970s. That's the context where it makes the most sense. The Courage to Heal is presented as a guide for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, but a lot of the book centers on determining if you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. To determine this, the unique tool that the book offers is writing, specifically self-exploration through writing. Writing is simple, inexpensive, and accessible. Through the tool of writing, The Courage to Heal promises readers they can as authors Doan and Hodges wrote, completely make sense of their lives and transform them through a simple process of writing and thus recovering memories. The premise of the book is that through creative writing, one can recover repressed memories of childhood sexual abuse and that this recovery of memories is in and of itself healing, therapeutic, and even liberating. In this setting, individual stories are by definition true and self-explanatory. They don't require additional factual context. But stories are not harmless. As Alice Carrier writes in her gripping recent memoir, Everything, Nothing, Someone, in regards to her mother, artist Jennifer Bartlett, a woman warped by memory recovery therapy and induced memories of satanic ritual abuse, stories can be damaging just stories, but just stories were powerful. Just stories led her far, far away from people and killed off something inside her. In my experiences, there is something inherent in storytelling that makes it easy to buff up reality, to make a more dramatic narrative. The emphasis on telling a story makes reality more difficult to be sure of. You want to tell a compelling story and that becomes the goal not necessarily the truth. Like how in episode one, I referred to sitting around the apartment table with my roommates and working on journaling with them. I joined them around the dining room table and we wrote with our non-dominant hands in order to bypass our conscious minds and encounter our- Probably our shared dining room table would have been covered with junk. At my friend's urging, I did write in a journal with my non-dominant hand and free write to access my unconscious what I was trying to imply with the image around the table was a slightly more simplified way to say that my roommates encouraged journal writing, that we did these things separately, but talked about them together. It was easier to just say we all worked with them around the table. It made for an easier story, but I don't think it was true. 
In my opinion, the problems with the book surfaced when it hit the big time. It started out as a niche book for a niche audience. Who cares if you're a creative writing instructor rather than a licensed therapist when you're writing for the other women in your writing circle? But the American mainstream amplified the book and collapsed the context. Suddenly the book was true, capital T, and the authors were experts. Their claims about the damaging effects of sexual abuse, their understanding of memory and how to access memories, their anecdotes about rage and cutting family members out of their lives. This was all loudly broadcast to a rather shocked audience. If you're willing to get angry and the anger just doesn't seem to come, there are many ways to get in touch with it. A little like priming the pump. You can do things that get your anger started. Then once you get the hang of it, it'll begin to flow on its own. Getting into an angry posture also helps. Physically taking an angry stance, making menacing gestures and facial expressions invites a genuine anger to rise. One day my therapist got up out of her chair and she said, your father's in that chair. And she handed me a rolled up towel and said, I want you to hit your father. Passages like this one show why the publication of this book really marks the beginning of what people called the memory wars. The authors may or may not have realized they'd unleashed a torrent of false information and incendiary language. Nevertheless, they quickly found themselves on the front lines of a battle, met by opponents. This language is similar to our modern culture war, and just like now, things quickly became polarized and emotionally charged. I don't think cultural disagreements benefit from being framed as oppositional, but that's what emerged back then. The courage to heal was seen as the opening salvo in a war. So we're going with this framing. Join me, won't you? in the memory hole? Next time, we'll suit up for battle. The memory wars begin in earnest in episode four. The music featured in this podcast is courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. It is entitled A Great Darkness Approaches Can You Feel It by Elephant. Links to this music and all of the resources used in this podcast can be found on the website memoryholepodcast.com. <laughs>